Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Like some food for thought? Tune in to Radical Philosophy with discussions on freedom, happiness, knowledge, evil and rational argument. With words from Hawthorne, Tatman, Jenkins, Hutchinson, Hirsi Ali and Plumwood. Let's get radical about philosophy. Sexuality is the great field of battle between biology and society. Nancy Friday, My Mother Myself, 1977. Welcome to Radical Philosophy. I'm your host, Beth Matthews. This is Jenny McMahon. I'm an Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of Adelaide. I visit Melbourne very regularly. In fact, I'm originally from Melbourne. And when I'm in Melbourne, I really enjoy listening to 3CR. Also, 30 years ago, I used to actually come on to 3CR as an art reviewer for a Saturday afternoon cultural program. So it's wonderful to know that 3CR is still thriving. And I'm speaking to Dr. Rebecca Hill, who is a senior lecturer in literary studies program at RMIT. Welcome to the program. Thank you, Beth. It's a pleasure to be here. What would your definition of sexual difference be? A sexual difference in the context of feminist philosophy is most most usually associated with the work of a, a French feminist philosopher called Lucie Rigoret. Sexual difference is is her... I, I will answer this in relation to a Rigoret because although... Rigore is not the only thinker of sexual difference in feminist philosophy. She is, I would say, the inaugurator of that tradition in feminist in feminist thought, in feminist theory. So the idea of sexual difference is one that suggests that it's primarily framed in relation to human beings. So the argument of sexual difference feminists is that the concept of the human being being understood as as a uh, as neutral does not work does not work well for for women because the concept of the human being has always already been defined as masculine for example if you think in terms of public life that the uh, concept of the human that's used to talk about the average the so-called average citizen a citizen is meant to be uh, a rational thinking individual and rationality is is associated with masculinity in this culture an, an example of this would be in public rhetoric sometimes as extreme and perhaps if you think about i mean it, sometimes there've been uh, women politicians will be called irrational for instance and the, the implication of that is that, that perhaps that women as politicians are not kind of natural politicians because the so-called natural or normalised idea of, a, for example, a leader would be a male one, even though in a certain sense the, the concept of a, a citizen or a politician or a subject, which in b- very broad terms you could say is the philosophical concept of a person, has been coded with with values that are associated with a, a certain 
dominant idea of masculinity. Sexual difference feminism, I guess the other thing to say about sexual difference is where equality feminism has said the concept of the human being has been defined as masculine, women were left out. We need to get women into the picture. We need to be able to say, no, women are just as capable of leading as men. Women are just as capable of being philosophers as men. Women are just as capable of being theoretical physicists as men. Sexual difference feminists in no way disagree with affirming the capacities of women to participate in public and social and political life as men have done for much longer. But we argue that equality feminism doesn't go far enough insofar as it does not take into account the fact that as human beings, as women and men, we're not neutral individuals. We are sexed beings. And when I say sexed beings, I mean by that that our experience of being persons is fundamentally bound up in what kind of uh, sexed body we have. So, uh, for example, the uh, if you if you were talking about sexual reproduction, for instance, women you know women give birth to children. Men do not do this. We need a way of thinking about the fact that people uh, are sexually specific. In in a uh, in a rigorous case, uh, in her in her later writings, uh, which I would date from the nineteen nineties. Uh, she would say there are three features that she particularly emphasises for distinguishing the concept of male subjectivity from female subjectivity. She talks about our relationship to... She talks about sex. So she says, for example, uh, and this is one of the most controversial things that she says. She says, and she's, it's, you could say that this is quite heterosexist. She says things like... Man makes love outside of himself. Woman makes love inside of herself. And and what she, what she is emphasising when she says this is the the irreducibility of experiencing carnal contact through a vagina or through a penis. Obviously, people have sex in all kinds of ways. So you might say, well, what about say kissing or something like this? I think that I I, I think I would agree that if the last the first and last word of a rigorous on sex was was this woman makes love uh, inside of herself and man makes love outside of himself and there is no there is there are no kind of exceptions or complications to this it would sound insane but she's making i think an important point about the way the, the way in which women and men experience sex through their genital org- through genital organs that they do not respectively share that are different for women and men she thinks that this means she thinks that this means and i have to say i agree with her that um, there are differences in the experiences that women and men would have in engaging in sex acts with one another or with people of their own sex or with people who are uh, trans i'm wondering about here but i'll say one of the things that's most controversial about her work I think for recent feminist theorists, theorists interested in lesbianism, theorists interested in queer theory, 
theorists interested in trans theory and maybe maybe I should just say not just in terms of theory but like for queer people for lesbians for tra- for the trans communities is that they will say of a rigorous work and her insistence on sexual difference being a claim that human beings are um, of at least two kinds that are different in nature but of equivalent dignity they will say that um, that this is Sometimes they'll say it's heteronormative and that her description of sexual difference is prescribing or arguing for some kind of heterosexual, compulsorily heterosexual society because she she talks about the need to think about the relationship between these two different kinds of human persons, women and men. And they'll say, they'll say well, the, one of the things that will be said is, well, what about trans people? Another thing that will be said is, you know, some people who are women aren't particularly interested in their relationships with men. And the thing that Arigure is saying, I will say, in the context of, let's say, homosexuality, to take homosexuality first, she's not actually making a proscriptive argument about, in emphasising the need for feminist philosophy to think about relations between women and men, she's not arguing for... Uh, the necessity of eros or, or um, carnal love between women and men, though that would be an aspect of her project, especially for people who are heterosexual, and there are indeed, you know, many much of the world is is heterosexual. So I, I, I think that I think that she affirms that as necessary. She's saying that we need to find ways to live with each other, to respect each other, to respect our differences between each other. So, uh, and, and, you know, I myself, like, uh, you know, I have many male friends and colleagues. I, I mean, we live, in, we live in a world of people of different sexes. We have to um, affirm and get along with each other somehow. So sexual difference feminism is about articulating a way beyond misogyny, beyond an, 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 a logic of equality, which tries to think of us all as kind of neuter individuals, of thinking about how we relate to each other in terms of our differences. I've meandered off. I wanted to say more about the sorts of differences that she emphasises in terms of um, why and how women and men are different. So I, I just I talked about sex. Um, she talks about the relationship to the mother or to our mothers that children have. And she says that the relationship of a little girl to her mother is different from the relationship of a little boy to his mother. When she says mother, there's various senses in which she means it. So there's the biological sense in which um, one would relate to the, the, the body that carried us as an embryo during a pregnancy, who may or may not be our biological mother in a genetic sense, so there's a relationship, there's that relationship, but then there's also the social relationship with uh, the person who cares for us or people who care for us when we're very, very young. She emphasises those, those relationships between a child and the child's primary carer, and she does focus on that, that relationship as being one between a woman as the carer and children, though she doesn't deny of course that sometimes um, and increasingly there are men engaged in in that sort of that sort of work that sort of work as well 
But she says that, so in relation to young children when they're growing up, um, that they learn, she says, you know, we are born sexed, so I'm born as a little girl, but there's a sense in which we also learn we also learn that we have a sex. So little, a little girl's discovery of sexual difference would, occasion, would be an occasion in which she would also discover that she comes from a body and a person's body like her own body and that she might at least potentially have the capacity to engender uh, a child within herself. Little boys, on the other hand, are in a situation which Rigoro says is much more difficult where they realise that that this this person who is is raising them is somewhat that they can't do what she can do. She actually says that I mean one of her arguments about patriarchal cultures and the way in which they've emerged is that that the boy suffers a kind of what the psychoanalysts call castration and ironically they say they say they talk about the woman as castrated but castration is actually the mark on the woman's body of the little boy's discovery that his mother is different from him. Psychoanalytic narratives present this as the mother's loss, as the mother has lost something in opposition to the boy having the, in opposition to the boy having um, a penis. But, but the, the point is the little, the little boy in discovering his difference from his mother discovers he can't engender life like she can. Arigure suggests that a kind of masculine response in patriarchal cultures to discovering this difference from women, and first of all to a female primary carer, is one of the reasons for developing strategies of mastery and dominance over women. It's actually about feeling disempowered, ironically, that, that leads to to strategies of devaluing of devaluing women, perhaps you know the enormous what Carol Pateman, who's a feminist political theorist, calls the awesome power of maternity, gets uh, all twisted around into being seen as a sort of um, a devalued thing in opposition to a certain patriarchal idea of masculinity. The third sense in which Arigaro talks about sexual difference is in terms of different uses of language. She suggests that women tend to favour more collective ways of speaking to one another and speaking with one another. I had a, I had a student last year actually who suggested, I thought this was a really interesting idea, that the, the use of the rising inflection by women, which is often criticised as sounding lacking in authority. I'll say the student's first name in case she ever hears this, which is unlikely. Her name is Erin, and it was a really cool point. That when women use when women use a rising inflection, they don't sound serious. They don't sound authoritative. To sound authoritative, you should never use a rising inflection. And it was further added to this discussion, this was amongst students, that women are told to use a deep voice, for example, in the media. If you want to get taken seriously, use a deep voice. You sound like you know more about what you're talking about. Using a high voice sounds silly. Um, This is a kind of uh, masculine coding of what sounds like speech that should be listened to and taken seriously. To go back to the um, example of the former student of mine, Erin, about rising inflection, she suggested that perhaps the rising inflection on the part of a woman when she tells you a story like this is actually a way of looking toward the other person and encouraging 
their confirmation and their engagement in what you're saying, which is about making a story together. The most respected form of speech, the most authoritative form of speech, is one which is is one in which the subject defines the objects in the world. They don't say to give an example, like a a style of speech in which someone says, um, and what did you think of this film? And you say that the, the a masculine style of speech would be to say it was it was brilliant, rather than saying, "Well, I thought it was brilliant." Uh, so uh, uh, it's, it's it's one which effaces the the position and the partiality of the speaker's point of view and presents it as defining a world. Uh, a rigorous argument about these different um, styles of speech. It's not a an argument that says all women speak in such a way to draw out dialogue with others and all men speak in terms of in an authoritarian way of kind of defining the world it's like this that is a terrible chocolate bar that's a strange example but i was in a i was in a uh, service station one day when i was a graduate student and buying a chocolate bar in a sh- in a queue and some guy i'd never seen in my life turned to me and said that's a terrible chocolate bar. And he was kind of joking, but it was just thinking, I mean, a woman would never say that to, I would say it would be unusual for a woman to say that as a, as a presumably playful way of interacting with somebody. So how did you respond? I gave him a kind of scowl and said, well, I like them. And then irritated later, I thought, I still avowed my own position. I mean, one is somewhat in a double bind in those situations because uh, I could, you could use universalizing language back. It is a wonderful chocolate bar. I didn't really have a particularly strong attachment to the chocolate bar I was buying. It was, it was uh, just a thing on a whim. Though I, I don't particularly like speaking in those kinds of ways. So avowing, avowing one's subjectivity, one's the fact that when you take a position on something, you are actually taking a position, it's a preference, is something I would rather do. But it doesn't have the authority of statements where you claim to define the world or objects. Arigaro's work on language is criticised sometimes by... Uh, some, some, some people suggest that it, it can't be generalised across all languages because linguistic structures vary. But, but it does... I think it is borne out a lot in an, a number of, of Indo-European languages... And quite a lot of work, I understand, I'm not a linguist at all in sociolinguistics, I, I think confirms her arguments about this, um, this tendency in um, masculine and feminine styles of speaking. You may have noticed I just shifted to masculine and feminine. I should say, I'll say male and female. Of course, there are some women who would favour the male style of speaking. And in fact, to get taken seriously... A lot of women in our careers would have to do that. Politicians, for example, when they're making speeches, would, would want to adopt a masculine style. One of Arigaro's points about that is that the feminine style of speaking, the more collaborative, open style of speaking, is one that's devalued, so uh, it's one that those people who have preferred that are taught not to do that because that's bad, it doesn't sound as serious, it doesn't sound as interesting, it doesn't sound as authoritative, 
so they learn not to do that and to speak in this other in this other more totalizing style which she associates with a dominant idea of uh, male subjectivity and the way that uh, male subjects have tended to speak. So what was it that inspired you to study sexual difference? I've always been interested in feminism. I was, uh, like many people, um, I did an arts degree, not really knowing what I wanted to do with myself. And I studied women's studies. I was at Monash and I was very lucky that at the time I was at Monash in the 90s, there was an amazing, uh, actually very well-known professor and one of the leading thinkers in sexual difference feminist philosophy was working there, um, Elizabeth Gross. And I, when I was in the in third year of university, I took classes with her, one of which was on sexual difference. I was drifting around with university, dropping in and out, actually pretty struggling in the way that a lot of young people do to try and work out what to do with myself. I was intensely interested in feminism, but the popular feminisms that I'd encountered, for example, going to, I don't know, meetings of women's groups or occasionally reclaim the night marches or whatever, I didn't really feel like I fitted in um, particularly. And I don't know, sexual difference feminism uh, appealed to me because I it resonated with me. I just, I, I found it a much, a, a much more persuasive, wide-ranging account um, and sophisticated account of the world and of the way in which patriarchal structures work in both thought and social relations, relations between people, and indeed in, in terms of our relations to, to the earth, to the environment, to animals, non-human animals, um, that sexual difference um, gave me a way of understanding the world that uh, was true to me. Uh, so I, I set about wanting to learn about it as much as I could. And I've really never stopped. I, I can't say when I was a third-year student and I started studying sexual difference, if you told me that I would be 20 years later working as a feminist theorist and mostly write, like most of my work is associated with thinking about sexual difference, that would have surprised me, but I, I'm happy I did it. And I try to teach it as much as I can. I teach literature, um, but I sexual difference is it's a way of both offering a critique of the history of thought and social relations, and I that's obviously enormously important. But perhaps the most exciting thing about it for me and for many many um, sexual difference feminists, I think, is that it it articulates a program for rethinking the way in which we understand ourselves as humans, as women, as men, as perhaps being of more than two sexes. Uh, Arigure doesn't talk about trans at all. I think that, I, I don't think that, she's an old, she's, she's in her 80s now. Uh, I, th I don't think that that should be used as a reason to dismiss her claims. We're not neutral individuals. Um, we are sexed beings, and there are perhaps more than two sexes. And it's not so mad. I, I don't think sexual difference should be seen as a kind of exclusionary idea. 
Sometimes there's a, in radical queer and trans circles, you'll hear people say, I don't like the gender binary. They'll say something like that. The gender binary. The word binary opposition is used in a very lazy way. Sorry, I've worked on Aristotle and I'm a little obsessive about these things, but um, the thing is that the idea of the gender binary is not something that sexual difference feminism affirms either. A binary, a binary configuration of how we understood the sexes is one in which the male sex is defined as privileged, as normal, as proper, as, and, and, and really has a monopoly on, on being human, on being rational. And the female sex is defined as the kind of negative other, the kind of um, negative space against which the male is posited, as, is, 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 is presented as being the kind of proper, normal way of being human. The female sex is seen as kind of deprived of a sex, even as, you know, in psychoanalysis, as castrated in opposition to the um, the position of um, of a of male subjectivity. So, um, thanks very much for coming onto the program today. Thank you. It's been great to be here. And I've been speaking to Dr. Rebecca Hill from RMIT about sexual difference. Hi. I am Kate Rigby, Professor of Environmental Humanities at Monash University, and I'm a fan of 3CR Community Radio, which is 8.55 on your AM dial, and I recommend in particular Radical Philosophy. So, Fred, uh, how are we today? Uh, yeah, yeah, good. Mm, we've certainly got some cavities here oh. in 16, 27 and 36. Oh, how did that happen? Sugar overload. Oh. You're in need of H3O. What's that? H3O? Yeah. Simple. Switch sugary drinks for water for 30 days. Oh. Keep it up and you may hear less of this. Take Vic Health's H3O Challenge and switch sugary drinks for water for 30 days. Find out more at h3ochallenge.com.au. Authorised by the Victorian Government, Melbourne. Spoken by Kate Gorman and Jeremy Hopkins. Workers United will never be defeated. May Day Celebrations 2015. International Workers Day. May Day Film Night. Tuesday, 6.30pm, 28th of April. Democratic Workers League. 583 High Street, Norcote. Wreath laying at the 8-hour monument on Thursday the 30th of April at 5pm. Victoria Parade, adjacent to Trades Hall. The May Day Multicultural Event, Thursday the 30th of April at 6.30pm, Vela Union, Trades Hall. The May Day March, Sunday 3rd of May, assembling at 1pm on the corner of Victoria and Russell Streets, opposite Trades Hall. The May Day Concert, Sunday 3rd of May, straight after the march on a speaker's platform. Everyone welcome. Workers united will never be defeated. El pueblo unido jamás será vencido. Hi, I'm Jackie Broad. I'm an ARC Future Fellow at Monash University, Melbourne, and I'm listening to Radical Philosophy on Radio 3CR. And that's all we have time for today. I'd like to thank Dr. Rebecca Hill for her discussion on sexual difference, and that is part one of the interview. So next week we're going to be listening to part two. And stay on the line for Are You Looking At Me?